I owe some people credit to this scripture because I never paid much attention to it. Uh, all throughout the book of uh, Genesis especially, but the Bible, there are genealogies after genealogies after genealogies, and they're really boring, to be honest, because all it is is uh, this person begot this person, who begot this person, who begot this person, who begot this person, who begot this person. And you think, what in the world is that possibly here for? I don't need to know who had who and why they had them at the time that they had them. But I began to uh, study this a little bit because uh, when Brett mentioned that we had to focus on the family, I knew I couldn't use my family as an example because we are far, far from perfect. Uh, so I knew that I needed to bring in somebody else that had a little bit more experience on a good family. And so I said, who better than Jesus? Uh, so I started researching a little bit and I found that there are two genealogies of Jesus throughout the Bible. And I said, that's it. We got to look at the family of Jesus because he will not let me down. So anyhow, as I began studying, uh, I found that the, uh, the word family has like, 15 different definitions in the dictionary, uh, but there were two that really stuck out to me and hit home with me. Uh, the first one being a basic social unit consisting of parents and their children considered as a group, whether dwelling together or not, the traditional family. Uh, AKA the people that you cannot get rid of. We've all tried at some point. You are stuck with them from the moment you were born until the moment either you leave or they leave one. Uh, the uncontrollable factors, if you would like to think about it like that. Uh, the second definition that really hit home with me is a group of people who are generally not blood relations, but who share, listen to this, common attitudes, interests, common goals, and frequently live together, a.k.a. the people who cannot get rid of you. Um, uh, or, if you want to think about it in a more politically correct way, the controllable factors. Uh, so that could be uh, members of a sports team. Uh, if you're part of some kind of club, those people, the ones that you desire to be around and that you know would have your back no matter what. And uh, uh, the thing about a family, listen to this, church. The thing about a family is that blood must run thicker than water. Family are the people who at the end of the day will always have your back, no matter how grim the situation or circumstances. They will hug you, they're gonna cry with you, they will lean on you, and they're gonna slap you when you need it. But you know what? They're always gonna love you. That's family. Today, I would like to examine a family who is so imperfect that it led straight to perfection. There is no better example of the ideal family than to look at the roots of our risen Savior. I have one goal for this message. I want to answer what a Christ-like family must look like. There is no hesitation and there is no doubt in this. Uh, so if you would, open up uh, either the Bible app uh, or your church app or uh, the Bible, whatever you've got on you to Matthew chapter 1. I've got two different sects of Scripture that we're going to look at and uh, compare and contrast them a little bit. And while you're doing that, I want to give you uh, context on the Scripture because I'm telling you, it is so important that we know what we're studying and what all is going around it because the book is not a fairy tale. This Bible was not put together on accident. Everything inside of it is meticulous, and we do not need to take it out of original context. It was wrote for a reason, and once we see that original context, we can then begin to study it, slice it up a little bit, and apply it to our lives like that. But we have to keep it in original context. 
So anyhow, we're going to be looking at two genealogies of Jesus the Christ as recorded in the Bible. Uh, first off, I want to talk about the authors. Uh, the first one being Matthew. Matthew was a former tax collector who answered the call to follow Jesus. He was literally at work one day when Jesus called him. Um, and so he instantly got up and followed Jesus and became a faithful disciple. Uh, being risen up as a tax collector, he was less inclined to include the little details and more interested in simply getting to the point. Uh, in other words, he liked to keep things short and sweet. The second genealogy that we're going to look at is wrote by Luke. Luke was a doctor, and he was writing his book to a very intelligent world leader at the time named Theophilus. If you want to know more about this, look in Luke chapter 1. And so uh, Luke, being a doctor, we knew that he was going to get into a lot more detail, that things had to be exactly on point, and he wanted to make sure that he included every last detail. And not only that, but he didn't want to look bad in front of Theophilus. He was writing to somebody who could ultimately have him killed if he wanted to. Okay, and so uh, you'll see exactly what I'm saying when we start looking at the scriptures. Um, but yes, Luke made that point that he had to get all the detail in because it was absolutely important. Uh, I study from the John MacArthur Study Bible. It's a wonderful resource. I would highly recommend it. And John MacArthur uh, writes something so well uh, in his study Bible. He says that Luke's genealogy moves backwards from Jesus to Adam. Matthew's moves forward from Abraham to Joseph. Luke's entire section from Joseph, excuse me, to David differs starkly from that given by Matthew. The two genealogies are easily reconciled if Luke's is seen as Mary's genealogy and Matthew's version represents Joseph's. Uh, thus, the royal line is passed through Jesus' legal father, and his physical descent from David is established by Mary's lineage. Luke, unlike Matthew, includes no women in his genealogy, even Mary herself, his own mother. Have I lost anybody yet? I know it's confusing, but when we, we start to read it, it'll open up a little bit to you. So look in Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 2. I'm going to be reading from the NIV. And it's going to be a mouthful, and I'll probably slaughter a couple of these names, but bear with me. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amenadab, Amenadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. We'll come back to that. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abiah, Abiah was the father of Asa, Asa the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Je uh, Jehoram, Jehoram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, uh, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amon, Amon the father of Josiah, and Josiah the Jeconiah and his brother at the uh, time of the exile of Babylon. We're about halfway there. Um, 
After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abiad. Abiad, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Elihud. Elihud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of uh, Mathen. Mathen, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. <laughs> Good Lord. Hey, look, if y'all need some baby names, y'all need to start reading some genealogies in the Bible, because if you want a unique name, I promise there's a lot of them that have not been taken today. Um, could you imagine walking up to school the first day and saying, yeah, here's old Sam, and he's coming with us. <laughs> Man. But uh, we can look at that, and there's a lot of familiar names in that text. And, and if you look at it, we see that there's a lot wrong with that picture. And you, you kind of almost start to wonder how in the world did a family like that give us a man like Jesus? It's like all the odds were stacked against him, and it, it's hard to fathom. Uh, but church, there, there's six points that I want to illustrate to you, and they should be in the church app if you want to follow along with me. Um, but I think this is really going to give us a lot of insight, okay? Uh, number one, God used a lot of imperfect people to fulfill his perfect will. Let me say that again. God used a lot, not just one or two, but a lot of imperfect people to fulfill his perfect will. Uh, somebody that I really want to focus on, and when, you know, if I wanted to take three days and cover every person in here who had a screwed up situation, you know, we could do it. But I want to focus in on uh, one person in particular, Matthew chapter 1, verse 6, and Jesse, the father of King David. Who's heard of King David? Okay, if you went to vacation Bible school, you have heard of King David. David was a man after God's own heart. He had everything going right. But David, like so many men in this world, had a problem with women. One day, while uh, after David had already beaten Goliath, he had already uh, you know, been king for a while, his army was off at war, and he was on the roof of his house, uh, gazing off, just looking at all of his land and all the territories that he owned. And while doing so, he saw somebody that caught his eye. That lady's name was Bathsheba. Bathsheba was married to a man named Uriah. Uriah was one of the top military personnel for King David. Knowing this, David calls for Bathsheba. Bathsheba was not going to tell the king no. He come, uh, Bathsheba comes prancing into the castle or whatever they were staying in, and uh, uh, one thing leads to another, and an affair happens. David sleeps with Bathsheba while Uriah is off at war fighting. Consequences follow. Bathsheba becomes pregnant. David freaks out. David says, I've got to do something to make this not look bad on me because I've built this army my whole life almost. I cannot lose it now because of one mistake. And so he says, hey, Uriah, you've been fighting good, man. Why don't you come home? Why don't you take a break and relax for a little bit? You need to see your wife. And he's thinking, he's going to come home. He's going to sleep with your uh, Bathsheba, and everybody will think that the baby is his. No big deal. Wrong. That did not happen. Okay. Uriah was such a faithful um, personnel in the military that he said, no, I will refuse to leave my men to come home and see my wife. Why would I get to come home and them not? I refuse. I am a warrior. And so uh, 
This puts a little kink in David's plan. David then says, I got to do something or else I'm gone. Do you know what David did? David put one of his best leaders on the front line to cover up his hands. He had Uriah killed so that he wouldn't get in trouble. That's in the family of Jesus. That's in the family of Jesus. Not only that, but this baby that Bathsheba had bore became one of, arguably the most wise person to ever walked the face of this planet. That baby that was born out of sin became King Solomon. King Solomon wrote like three books in the Bible. He, you know, all the foundations to wisdom usually come from the roots of Solomon. God can make a good thing out of a horrible situation. God used a lot of imperfect people to fulfill his perfect will. And like I said, David is not the only one. Don't think that I'm just picking on him because, you know, you can go and look at all these many situations and find out that it was a very dark and grim time of life for a lot of people. Moving on. Number two, God used a lot of unfortunate situations and events to fulfill his perfect will. Let me say that again. God used a lot of unfortunate situations and events to fulfill his perfect will. Uh, Matthew chapter 1 verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Yeah, all it says is that Abraham was the father of Isaac. It does not mention any of the process that Abraham had to go through to have that son Isaac. Did you know that Abraham was father or, or promised when he was young to be the father of many generations, that he himself was going to be the one that started this Israeli country that God's people would dwell in? And when he was 90-some-odd years old and still had no baby, he was getting a little bit stressed out. And so he said, what the heck, God? What, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to be the father of many generations if my wife cannot have me a child? And so he starts exploring other options. And that leads, you know, one thing leads to another, and it, it becomes pretty rough. But anyhow, it took over 100 years for Abraham to have Isaac. We don't ever read between the lines to see these kind of things. Just because you're in an unfortunate situation right now does not mean that God has forgot about you. It doesn't mean that God is not still fighting for you. you know. Uh, and just because you're a little broken right now does not mean that God is not going to use this event that's going on right now for you later on in life. He has not forgot about you because you can look through the very bloodline of Jesus and see that God used a lot of unfortunate situations to make his perfect will come true. And so if he could do that in Jesus' life, can't he do that in your life? Not only that, but in verse 11 of Matthew chapter 1, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon, there was like a couple hundred years that God's people, the ones that he loved, were in Babylonian exile. And let me tell you something. Babylonian exile was not fun by any means. Uh, then we can't also forget that, you know, in the time of Abraham, you were in Egyptian slavery, Egyptian slavery is nothing that we can even fathom today. God used a lot of unfortunate situations and events to make his perfect will come true, and we cannot forget that when our own life comes to that point. Just because we cannot see a light at the end of the tunnel does not mean that it is not there. Number three. This one hit me when I studied it. 
God knew all along exactly what he was doing. Flip over with me to Matthew or Luke chapter 3. We see all these names and uh, these are even a little bit more hard to uh, pronounce, so I'm not even going to try. But look down towards the end of uh, Luke chapter 3, verse 37. And the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Kenan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. God had this all perfectly lined up from the beginning of time, and he never once missed a beat, and he never once got anything wrong from the time that he created this earth to the time that Jesus came. He was using every last piece of information and mishaps and misunderstandings and lies that were told and affairs that were given and you know people having to wait until they were 100 some odd years old to have a baby. He was using every last piece of it for his will. He knew all along exactly what he was doing, and he knows exactly what he's doing in your life. We cannot forget that. He did not miss a beat, and I promise you right now that he's not going to. I've read the end of the book. Number four. I want to kind of shift gears real quick. We've looked at what God did for Jesus. Now let's look at what God is doing for us. Number four, God is using your imperfect family to get you where you need to be. God is using your imperfect family to get you where you need to be. If he is breaking you right now, he's blessing you later. If he's breaking you right now, he is blessing you later. When uh, a couple gets married... You know, it doesn't say in the good times only. It says in the good times and in the bad times. When you have kids, it's, you don't just get to have your kids when they're making good grades and not doing dumb things. It's when you got to spank them. It's when you got to uh, hug them and tell them that things are going to be okay. And it's in the good times and in the bad times. We've got to remember that. People in your family are going to let you down. They're going to let you down. I mean, I hate to, I, I know that I'm borderline perfect, but I'm going to let you down. Believe it or not, I'm going to let you down, okay? If he's breaking you now, he's going to be blessing you later. Number five, God is using unfortunate situations in your family to get things as they should be. Romans 8, 26 and 28. Let me read this. And if you don't want to run through a wall after reading this, you need to check yourself. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless, wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And here we go, verse 28. We need to hang on to these things. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. God is using the unfortunate situations in your family right now for your good, because he says it right here, that if you love him and that if you were trying to live out his purpose for your life, he has got your back no matter what. And if there is one person in this life that you want to have your back, it's God. Because God will never leave you and never forsake you. His word says it. Number six, 
Turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. I need to remind everybody of something. Point number six, God has not forgot what the end looks like. God has not forgot what the end looks like. Revelation chapter 21, starting in verse one. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Verse four, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. But he who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. God has not forgot what the end looks like. And so therefore, we as Christ followers cannot forget what the end looks like. We have got to once again change our perspective from such internal thinking to where we think the grave is our very last step to eternal thinking where the grave is really our first step to our true life. That is what we've got to focus on because in Revelation chapter 21, God said that he's going to wipe away every tear. He's going to take away every ounce of pain and that even the people that you have lost and the hurt you felt when you lost them, they're going to be up there in the same manner. That's Revelation 21. So in closing, what must a Christ-like family look like? Key word there. Must a Christ-like family look like? Number one, they should be imperfect. If you ever think your family is perfect, you are wrong. I will tell you that. I could probably prove it to you because I can know I can prove it to you that my family is imperfect. Okay? A Christ-like family, look at the lines of Jesus, is gonna be imperfect. Number two, you're gonna be broken at times. You're gonna be broken. At times, Abraham saw no end to his misery of not having a child. God still gave it to him. Finally, number three, a Christ-like family must be faithful to God's plan. There's a lot of mishaps. There are a lot of mess-ups. But not once did any of these 42-some-odd generations ever fail God. They remained faithful to the plan. I want to end you on an uh, acronym that I saw last night. And before I give you this acronym, I want to remind you of 1 Corinthians 13, 13 that says, Abide in these three, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. L, listen. Sometimes as a family, we need to slow down. We need to hear each other out. And we need to make sure that we understand all of the situation completely. Far too often we get stuck in our own mind and we are so convinced that we are right no matter what that it leads just to one bigger argument after another. Hear your spouse out. Hear your kids out. Hear your in-laws out. Whoever it may be, you need to take time and listen. Listen and then react. Oh, overlook. Remember I said your family's gonna let you down? You cannot hold that against them. You are not perfect. You cannot expect them to be perfect. That's a simple rule for life. V, value. We must cherish our family because I promise you, anybody in here that's lost somebody close to them would 
kill for one phone call to heaven. Value your time while you've got it because one day it's going to be gone. Finally, and I will end on this one, encourage. That's the love acronym. If you spend all your time degrading, manipulating, and hating on people in your family, your family will never look like Christ. Sometimes we need to encourage them whether they're doing what you want them to or not, okay? They are still your family. You cannot choose them. Uh, You were born into them, and therefore you have to have their back. At the beginning, I started off by saying that blood must run thicker than water. Encourage those people around you. Man, if you wanna come up, I'm gonna pray. And uh, while I pray, I just wanna want to challenge you. I hope that you weren't daydreaming during this sermon. I, I pray that you were vividly listening and trying to figure out how this could apply in your own life. But I want you to think about your own family. I want to see, are, are y'all a Christ-like family? Are you living out what Jesus instructs us to? If not, the best place and the best time to start is right here, right now. Maybe it's sitting at your altar and praying for them. Maybe it's grabbing their hands and just whispering that you love them. Maybe it's you taking a step of obedience and coming down to the altar and praying. Something else. These altars, you know, you don't have to be applied. To that. The message does not have to directly apply to you to come to this altar. These altars are a form for uh, getting close to God and showing that you are willing to step out into the waves to come to him because it's not an easy step to make it down here. Don't let the enemy tell you otherwise. I'm going to pray for us. God, you are so good, Lord. Your mercies endureth forever, God. I thank you for this message. And Lord, I thank you for whoever uh, this message was for, God. I know that it was for somebody. And so, Lord, I pray that right now you would prick their hearts, God. I pray that as a family, they would come and see you, God. I pray that they would turn to you, God. I pray that they would listen to you, God. And I pray that they would take this uh, lesson and apply it to their life of what a family of Christ truly looks like. God, I thank you for teaching me myself so much about this. But God, I pray that no matter what, we can sing the words of that song we sang earlier. God, you are so good, no matter what the situation looks like, because you are, and there is no other way around it. Father, I'm proclaiming victory in the name of Jesus, God, because Christ came, he lived, he walked, he was perfect, he bled, he died, and then he rose again. May we never forget that. And it is in Jesus' name, amen.